This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, August 3rd. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. Brandon Tatum is a former Tucson police officer. He started off as a liberal, but through an evolving journey, part of which was time spent in college, became a conservative. He joins me today on the Daily Signal podcast to share his story and also talk about why he does not believe America is a racist country. Today's interview was recorded at the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit, so please excuse any background music and noise. And don't forget, if you are enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. The Senate is moving forward with a $1 trillion infrastructure bill, which the House passed last week. Senate negotiators worked through the weekend to complete a draft of the more than 2,700-page bill. The next step is for senators to debate amendments. As of Monday morning, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said there were already three amendments being considered. Schumer said Sunday evening that, in the end, the bipartisan group of senators have produced a bill that will dedicate substantial resources to repair, maintain, and upgrade our nation's physical infrastructure. The bill allots $550 billion for infrastructure such as roads, rail, electric vehicle charging stations, and replacement of lead water pipes. The money is on top of the $450 billion already approved for such projects. Schumer is encouraging his Senate colleagues to act quickly on the legislation ahead of the August recess, which is scheduled to begin next week. A report from Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee has found that COVID-19 was accidentally released from a lab at China's Wuhan Institute of Virology. The report says that the preponderance of evidence suggests that SARS-CoV-2 was accidentally released from a Wuhan Institute of Virology laboratory sometime prior to September 12, 2019, and that the virus or viral sequence that was genetically manipulated was likely collected in a cave in Yunnan Province, People's Republic of China, between 2012 and 2015. The report from the House Republicans also found that Chinese Republican Party officials, Wuhan lab researchers, and potentially American citizens all directly engaged in efforts to obfuscate information related to the origins of the virus and to suppress public debate of a possible lab leak. Former President Barack Obama is about to turn 60 and plans to celebrate with a big party at his home on Martha's Vineyard this coming weekend. But concerns about COVID-19 and the Delta variant are prompting some to question whether the birthday party plans should proceed. Axios reports that someone familiar with the party for Obama said all guests will be required to be tested for COVID-19. The party will be held outside and reportedly a COVID coordinator will be present to make sure all protocols are followed. Axios also reports that more than 450 guests are expected to attend the party and another 200 persons will staff the event. Hollywood director Steven Spielberg is among those expected to attend. A White House spokesperson told Axios, while President Biden is unable to attend this weekend, he looks forward to catching up with former President Obama soon and properly welcoming him in to the Over 60 Club. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is saying he is asking and suggesting that private businesses such as stadiums and restaurants serve customers only if they are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Here's what Cuomo had to say Monday at a press conference via CBS News. Private businesses, I am asking them and suggesting to them 
go to vaccine-only admission. Go to vaccine-only admission. We did this, Radio City Music Hall, months ago. Reopened, vaccine-only. Sold out all the shows. Sports arenas, they went up to about 90% vaccine-only. Private businesses, bars, restaurants, go to a vaccine-only admission. I believe it's in your best business interest. You know, if I go to a bar and I want to have a drink and I want to talk to the person next to me, I want to know that that person is vaccinated. If I go to a restaurant and I'm sitting at a table and the table right next to me, I want to know that they're vaccinated. I believe it's in your business interest to run a vaccine-only establishment. We're the first state in the nation to have something called the Excelsior Pass. Rob Mejica made it a reality. We have passes. They're on apps. They're on phones. It's very simple. You can operate a restaurant and just say, you have to show that you were vaccinated when you walk in the door. It's going to help your business not hurt it. Call Madison Square Garden. Call Radio City Music Hall. Call the Nets. Call the Islanders. Call the Mets. Call the businesses that have done it. Call the theaters that have done it. If you say to people, well, if you don't have a vaccine, you can't get into these establishments, then you'll see a real incentive to get vaccinated. And again, with our Excelsior Pass, you can do it, you can do it easily. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Brandon Tatum. Americans use firearms to defend themselves between 500,000 and 2 million times every year. But God forbid that my mother is ever faced with a scenario where she has to stop a threat to her life. But if she is, I hope politicians protected by professional armed security didn't strip her of the right to use the firearm she can handle most competently. To watch the rest of heritage expert Amy Swear's testimony on assault weapons before the House Judiciary Committee, head to the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. There you'll find talks, events, and documentaries backed with the reputation of the nation's most broadly supported public policy research institute. Start watching now at heritage.org slash YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. We're joined on the Daily Signal podcast by Brandon Tatum. He's a former Tucson police officer. Brandon, thank you so much for being with us on the Daily Signal. It's it's an honor. Thank you. Well, can you start off by telling us first about, so we're here talking at a conservative conference, and I want to talk about your career in law enforcement and some of the things you did. But I first want to talk about yourself and your journey in the conservative movement. Were you always a conservative? Was that something that you gradually learned about? How did you get to where you are when it comes to what you believe in terms of conservatism? Well, you know, I started out just like most, you know, young black men in the country where default is being a liberal. Default is being a Democrat. And so all of the Democrat positions that you see most African-American men believe in today is what I believe before, even though I wasn't politically involved as much as I am today. But over time, I begin to wake up and be more involved and then I woke up to what the reality was. A lot of that happened um, when I was in college. Uh, I started to see that the country isn't as racist as I thought it was. You know, I'm in a majority white university, and I was seeing things that was perpetuated to me as a young man that were just becoming unraveled. I got saved in 2008, 
I found Christ, and that really helped me as well start to look at people not by their race, per se, but by the fact that they are all, we are all God's children, and I judge you based on your character. Um, the Martin Luther King mantra is something that I, I internalized more when I got saved. And then when I became a police officer, I was still a liberal. I voted for uh, Barack Obama. Um, thank you, Barack Obama, because Barack Obama is what really made me leave the Democrat plantation, in my what I call the plantation. And so um, I paid taxes for the first time, significant amount of taxes when I was a cop. And I said, I need to be more politically involved because I don't like these taxes. What, what is happening here? You know, I thought I was going to get an apartment, a car, and with these taxes, I ain't going to be able to buy nothing. And so it made me feel like I need to know what's going on. So then Barack Obama started talking real bad about police, and that really turned me off. And I opened my eyes and understanding to the other side. I was totally inspired by Ben Carson and, uh, and Donald Trump. And so Donald Trump emerged. I love the fact that he was keeping it real and being himself, authentic, wasn't a politician, big money man. I, yeah, I like him. And so that kind of pushed me more to realizing that I'm more on the conservative side than I would ever uh, be on the liberal side. Well, you had mentioned that it was President Obama that made you a conservative. Can you tell us more about that and how that happened and what specifically uh, made you start thinking and make that switch? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of people become conservative not because of conservatives but because of liberals, you know. So uh, it, was, it was policing because I was a police officer at the time. I was on duty in the streets patrolling every day. And he was really making negative statements about police regarding police shootings. And were, he was never correcting the record. Like he would say, um, the Cambridge police, I think, it, I think they were Cambridge police, um, they were acting stupidly, right? Uh, and he made that statement and they weren't wrong. We came, come to find out they were incredibly accurate in them detaining a person that they thought was breaking into a house. And he never corrected it. And then he talks about, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin would have been like his son. And it's like, what? What are you talking about? That your son would never be like Trayvon Martin. You know, he'd be in the hood buying Skittles and running down the street and getting into altercations with people. And he kept talking about police in a negative way, and it just really turned me off to the point where I said, I would never respect anybody who wouldn't support the men and women who wear the uniform. I don't care who it is. It could be my mama. You know, I lose respect for people that don't respect police, and that was the, the genesis of the downfall for um, me being a what I would call a Democrat or a liberal. We've had quite a career in law enforcement. You were a Tucson police officer for six years. You became a SWAT operator, field training officer, general instructor, public information officer. Can you tell us about, first, how you became interested in law enforcement, and then maybe some of your uh, memories or something that stood out to you from your time in your career in law enforcement? Yeah, so I started out when I was younger. I, I didn't like police officers. You know, growing up, I, they were racist white people. That's what I heard. You know, that's what I was taught and, and what I thought. I actually got arrested when I was eight years old for smoking marijuana in a vacant house. Uh, me and seven six other my other cousins and my brother uh, we all got arrested for smoking weed i mean we were doing some nefarious things at the time it was a, a pretty traumatic experience to a certain degree you know they pulled guns on us and stuff like that because we were in a vacant house and uh they put us all in a patrol car we got put in handcuffs we went to the substation and the most traumatic thing wasn't really the police it was the fact that my dad showed up and i thought he was gonna kill us so <laughs> that was the most trauma that i had that experience you know kind of scared me when it comes to law enforcement and but I'll, I needed a job I mean I was in the NFL draft in 2010 I didn't get drafted 
Uh, my mentor told me that I need to turn the page. You know, hey, if, if it's not working out for you, you need to do something. You got a child, you got, you got responsibilities. And so I said, you know, I'm gonna apply for everything in the city of Tucson. And the policing was one of them. And I didn't think they would call me back. You know, I knew nothing about being a police officer. And the funny thing is, I had a, I had a uh, argument with my, at the time, my fiance. And I remember the next morning, the police department called me, Tucson police called me. And I didn't think nothing about the application. I thought that she called the police on me. And I'm like, I can't believe she called the cops on me. She won't get me arrested over an argument over the phone. And then they were like, you apply for the job, right? And I'm like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, well, now we can talk. I almost hung up on them. So then I, then I, I said, well, I need to figure out what the heck is going on because I know nothing about policing. I did a ride along and I was blown away. Officer Sean Payne blew me away. I saw a hero in Champagne that I've never seen in another person. And, and I said, you know what, I, I want to be like, I want to be a hero. And that's how I joined the police department. Working in law enforcement, what have you learned about what general people, the general public think of police? Also with the added issue of racism where people think police are racist, what's your perspective on that? And how should that be addressed? Well, uh, people have no idea what police officers do. Even people that support police officers have almost no idea what they actually do. Policing is a very different monster. Um, it's a very different profession than most people understand. And if they do ride along or they were actually a police officer like I was, then you realize that it's so much more going on here than what people may understand. Also, the majority of the people who are anti-police, they're completely wrong. It's, you know, when, when they, you talk about policing being a, a racist institution, that is the biggest lie that I've heard in, in a very long time. Police officers and policing in America is probably the least racist institution in America. Why do you say that, Mr. Tatum? What person can be a racist and put your life on the line for the people that you hate, that you're racist against. It's, it's, it's almost an impossibility. Every day you go out, you don't get to pick what people you serve on a call. You have to go and serve people with your life. I'm talking about your, like, this is not a video game. You don't die and then hit the reset button and come back. Like, when you die, it's final. When you get injured, you get critically injured, it's final. Your friends die in the line of duty, it's final. When you have to kill somebody, it's final. You wouldn't do all that stuff in a black community if you was a racist, white, Ku Klux Klan police officer. Because most of it is not arresting people and putting them in prison. Most of it is serving and protecting people. And then there's occasions where you have to put people, people away. But, you know, it's, it's the least racist organization that I've ever been a part of. Um, and I think it's a very heroic profession. That's something that I've learned. And I have an incredible respect for people that, that put on the badge. It's, it's, it's hard to explain how difficult it is to be a police officer, and especially now. I mean, the stress of being a cop, the things that you see that you can never unsee. You don't get a chance to put a filter and a blur over a person that is going 80 miles per hour down a public road, hit a light pole, and you, so you know what that's gonna end up looking like. You, a guy getting run over by three cars on the freeway, you don't get to unsee that. Some, a, a man beating his wife to the point where her eyes are swollen and blood is coming out of her eyes, you don't get a chance to unsee those things. And so being a police officer is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly inspiring at the same time. So that's, that's one of the biggest things that I took away from when I actually became a cop. Thank you for sharing that. You had mentioned something earlier about how your dad stepped in when you all were in that vacant house. Oh, yeah. And how he was that he was the person that showed up and, you know, called you on the carpet. How important are dads in today's society? And what would you what do you have to say about the crisis of fatherhood? I think we see this in so many different communities, the black community, but other communities as well. What would your advice and why are dads so important today for society? Yeah, great, great question. Um, men are incredibly you know, um, men are incredibly, a, an incredible asset to our community. 
men in general. And then fathers are even more incredible to the family. You know, I, I think that young men, if I didn't have a dad, I wouldn't be here. If I, if I had some, because my mama, I'm going to be honest, I love my mama. She wasn't going to come to the, the, jail, the little holding cell and do what my daddy did. My daddy came in there like he was in the WWE or something. He, I thought it was Hook Hogan in there. He said he was going to kill us and everything. That, that healthy fear of my father kept me out of a lot of things. Also, people don't understand how invaluable a, a man is to a young man. When, when you, you see an example of who you can become, you don't have to imagine it. You don't have to rely on an outside source to determine who you are, what your legacy is. Having, seeing your father, he don't even have to talk to you. Just seeing the man that created you is something that's so inspiring subconsciously to a lot of young men. The, the, the woes of our society are on the backs of men, not women, men. Men are responsible for the fallout. Men are responsible for the recovery. Men need to be in their proper position if we want to do great things in this country. And if we want to see a change in, you know, young people in the inner city, we want to see a change in marriages, all this stuff, it's the man is responsible. And that's why I think it's so incredibly, you know, uh, important for us to talk about these things. When you look at the Bible, for all the Christians out there, you know, Christ is the head of the church, the man is the head of the household. There is a, there is a order that we need to be in in order for us to reach success. But the, the ultimate thing in success for young men is having a father. Well, you went viral in 2016 for some videos that you made on politics and society. Can you tell us about the story behind that and what happened and how that was sort of a rise to where you're, where you're at today? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a, a person that keep it 100. You know, I keep it real. I just say what I feel. You know, I'm just me. You know, and, and so I never made videos before. I never thought about making videos. But I went to a Donald Trump rally because I want to see, is this guy a racist, white supremacist like they say he is? Do black people get kicked out of his rallies? Or... Are these people making up something? I want to see for myself. He kicked me out of here, then I'm going to know. Um, and I went, I was blown away. I was like, this is the coolest dude ever. He's probably the, my favorite politician. And these leftists are nut jobs. They're out of control. They're outside screaming. And one of them called me a white supremacist. And I was like, you guys are completely lost. And so with that, inspired me to just say, I'm going to document this on a video because the 100 followers that I have, uh, we'll see what they think about this. I, didn't, I had no idea. I didn't even know what Fox, I didn't know what Fox and Friends was. I didn't know nothing, but I never watched Fox. Um, and so when I made that video and it went viral, I remember waking up and thinking, oh, I'm going to get fired. They're going to fire me. You know, it, because I did talk some trash about the guy that got beat up at the rally. Uh, I said he deserved it. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to get fired. And I had Hannity and all these things, and it kind of blew up. And I just realized that I had a voice. So I said, you know what, I'm going to keep speaking the truth and saying what I feel. And that's just it. And then it turned into this big thing. But initially it was just me telling the truth. Well, Brandon, you did another video uh, talking about what happened with Colin Kaepernick. Oh, yeah. You felt it was important to speak out about that. Can you tell us why? Let me tell you the backstory to that, because most people don't understand this. So I was getting into it. I had already mentioned Colin Kaepernick the year before in 2016. It was viral. Um, Colin Kaepernick was an idiot in 2016 and 17. However, I was arguing with one of my friends who I played football with who was in the NFL. And he... He did a low blow, man. He 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 messaged me and said, "You just mad because you're not in the NFL." Oh, you know that 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 got to me. So I said, "You guys are playing a game. You're not in real life. You lose the game, you go home. And as a police officer, if you lose the game, you never go home." So that really got me fired up. And I'll say this: one of my friends had already made a video, had 14 million views. I was like, "I don't need to make a video." I had a friend in Australia call me on the phone. 
and say, hey man, you need to make a video about this. You have a unique perspective. And I was like, nah, man, I don't need to be the dead horse. And then that argument with my friend happened, the football player, and then that just made me go off. I was like, oh, I'm gonna say it all. Screw Colin Kaepernick, screw all these people who are out here pushing this false agenda, who hate this country for no reason. You know, and that, that kind of what my inspiration was. I, I made that video and it had 70 million views. Wow. It was crazy. Big picture, Brandon, what is your perspective on the conservative movement as a whole right now? Oh, we need to improve. I think we're doing good. I mean, I'm in the conservative movement, Candace, and a lot of people who were in the conservative movement in 2016. So obviously there are conservatives that are paving the way for young people to come up and be inspirational in the movement. We need to improve. Like, we need to really be conservatives. Sometimes we sometimes we're, we're lackluster a little bit. You know, like I hear some conservatives talking about uh, abortion is, is a viable choice, like a woman's choice. And it's, that's the, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life, you know. So we need to stand on that, you know. We, Bruce Gender, I mean Bruce Gender or, or Caitlyn Gender, 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 whatever his name is. I don't. We shouldn't support people like that, and not just because the person is a trans person, but the person is not conservative. The person is not upholding conservative values. And as conservatives, the more we give, they're going to end up overtaking our party. So our, our movement. So I think that conservatives need to be a little more strict on those things. Not saying that you got to cast people out, but speak up. Keep it 100. Tell the truth. Are you a believer or are you not a believer? Are you do you believe in the sanctity of marriage or do you not? Do you believe that, you know, abortion is murder or do you not? It's fundamental things that I see us creeping away from that eventually, just like the liberals, we're going to go far to a point where conservatives are not going to be recognizable. And so you know, I'm not trying to be mean to people, but we have to be more strict in our conservatism. You mentioned how some conservatives say abortion is a valuable choice. When it comes to the black community in particular, there are abortion clinics disproportionately in these black communities. What do you want to tell people about that situation and how Planned Parenthood and other abortion organizations, they are racist? Well, I want to tell people that you, you have choices, right? I mean, the manipulation of po people in poverty, which is where it starts, because if you look at communities in general, the Planned Parenthoods are in poor communities. They're not in nice, wealthy communities. They're not. And so poor communities and happen to, you know, a lot of African-Americans happen to live in some of these poor communities, so they fall victim to it. Without a, the lack of knowledge and, and the exposure, they fall victim to it. I think that obviously the origin of Planned Parenthood, if you look at Margaret Sanger and them, is a eugenicist perspective and to exterminate people that they didn't want to be around, which are black people. Now, let me tell you how that has come to fruition. African-American people in this country still are hovering around 13% of the population, while Hispanic people are soaring. Eventually, they say people of color are going to run the country. You no, know, it's going to be Hispanic people. It's not going to be black people. And if we keep having abortions, which black people have the most abortions per capita out of any race, and it's consistent in some states, they have more abortions than give birth, we are hurting ourselves with political leverage. Because now 13% of the population, what is that? You know, you want to be 40, you want to be 40, 50 percent of the population. So when you go out and vote, it makes an incredible difference, local level and federal level. But if our numbers are diminishing and we become 10 percent of the population, 8 percent of the population, our votes are going to be somewhat irrelevant when, when people have fought so hard for us to have a, a stake in this country. So those things are hurting our communities. Also, a perspective is that it's, it's allowing men to not be accountable for their creation and it's allowing women to not be accountable for their actions. If you could just go out and have an abortion on a whim, why would you protect yourself? Why would you not wait till marriage to have sex or whatever it can be, or at least protect yourself? Why would, you, why would you do that when you could just go have an abortion? Why would a man value a woman enough to 
if he creates something that he st he stays around and have responsibility, if he believes, well, I'm going to walk away because she can just go to the clinic. These things have a residual effect that are really harming communities in this country. And I really wish people would wake up and realize they have other options. Well, Brandon, as someone who mentors youth, I'm sure, in your capacity in law enforcement and even now uh, working in the conservative movement, what advice, what message do you have for young conservatives, but just young people in general who uh, have critical race theory being talked about in their classrooms? So many college campuses are talking to young people about communism and elevating that as an acceptable solution. What would you say to them as they're fielding through all these different barrages of information that they have being thrown at them? Well, understand one thing is that you got to stand firm on what you believe. And what you believe should be firm on evidence and facts, right? It's not emotions. So if you have evidence of facts that support what you believe, which, which is that critical race theory is trash and that communism don't work, and even even the secretary of, I mean, not secretary of state, but the press secretary said it is, is delusional as she is. She said that communism is, is a failed uh, mechanism. So if you are confident in doing your research and understanding that what you believe is based on reality and facts, then stand on that. If you don't, we lose. If you do, we win. We'll be victorious. It will ebb and flow. Right now, it seems like they're winning. But just like any other sporting event, you can be losing, but the game ain't over. To the fat lady singing, what they say. Now, now that's probably not politically correct, but until the fat lady singing, the game is not over. Until the clock is over, you better keep fighting. You better keep playing in the game because all you need is a Hail Mary and you're going to win the game, right? Inch away, kick that field goal, you win the game. Don't give up too early. So conservatives, stay strong. Believe in what you believe. Um, don't let these people punk you and cower you into feeling like you're a racist. Screw these people. If you know you're not a racist, screw them and tell them to their face, screw you, I'm not a racist. You're a racist. That's what you should say to them. Be strong, be firm, and, and you'll win in the end. Well, Brandon, thank you for joining us on The Daily Signal. It's great having you with us. Thank you. Great, incredible interview. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to The Daily Signal podcast. You can find The Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.